0: Alright,
1: I'm Rachel Woody. I'm here on November 20th, 2014 at Bethel Heights and I'm here with Pat Dudley. And my first question for you Pat is why wine?
2: Why wine? Wow, that's a big one. Uh, Okay, why wine? Good question. We, uh, my husband and I and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who became our partners in this enterprise, we were all academics and we had finished graduate school. This was back in the heyday of funding for graduate students. It's important to know that because we we, we exited graduate school with no debt, which doesn't happen to anybody anymore. So we, it was those free and easy days. We went to Europe on fellowship money and we did our research in Europe and lived on five dollars a day like you could in those days. And every part of every day was either one or two meals in a relatively cheap restaurant that always had a carafe of wine on the table and it always went on for an hour or two. So that was kind of the setup. And then we got jobs, and it wasn't like that anymore, it was back in the States. And we were working really hard and trying to earn our tenured positions and have our babies and struggling along. And it was just, it started to feel like, is this really the way life is supposed to be? Because it wasn't that way when we were in graduate students. Surprise, surprise. And so we started thinking about just an escape. And um, it it took a while. You know, those things just sort of sit in the back of your head and you don't really believe you're going to do it. We read... um, an article in the New Yorker, my husband and I, one one time, that was one of those aha, maybe it could be done things. It was about the Hargraves in Long Island who were just like us. A couple that had no farming background, no background that had anything to do with it, but that bought a property on Long Island and started a vineyard and made wine. And they were nerdy intellectuals like we were and just kind of went at it like, of course we can do that, why not? That sort of 70s attitude, really a 60s attitude that kind of lingered on, why not? And so um, opportunity was um, actually my grandfather, who I have to thank for this, he passed away just about when all this was fermenting in our minds and left us a little bit of money. And the other thing that happened was the housing market. I mean, everything, it was just flowery times for everybody. We had all, Terry and Marilyn in Seattle had bought a little house that was a fixer up around Queen Anne Hill, I think it was. And we had a little tiny house that was $20,000 when we bought it in the suburbs of Detroit. And, By the time we had sat in those houses for six years, the values had gone way, way up, so we sold our houses and we took a little Capital West and found a place. And we had thought about wine in the meantime. Your question was, why wine? Why wine? Because wine was a part of what we had this vision of. And meanwhile, my brother-in-law, who uh, was at the University of Washington, got himself connected with this group of professors and graduate students there who were doing wine in, they had rented a warehouse. It became associated vintners in the end. It was this group of amateurs. They'd bring in wine from Washington, uh, from Eastern Washington every year and make wine in this warehouse together. And then he started making wine in his basement. And whenever we had family vacations together, we would always, the entertainment for the evening was always go out and buy some bottles and put them in brown bags and have fun trying to tell what they tasted like and what they were. So it sort of became our hobby, our pastime, our things we did when we weren't working. That was fun. And so the moment came where we could pick up and leave our jobs with our little a of money and find a place. And again, flowery times for everybody. These pieces of land in Oregon that are now considered the high value vineyard land were at that point in time, the early 70s, considered low value agricultural land, secondary lands. This property that's Bethel Heights Vineyard now was slated to become a mobile home park. It was platted for residential, chopped up into little tiny residential pieces. Well, it's true of a lot of the land that's now considered valuable vineyard land. The farmers were going out of business. They couldn't compete with California. It was rocky, uh, uh, very uneven terrain, very hard to farm, very thin soil, what was considered poor soil. And so for a song, you could get into it, and if you were willing to do all the work, and, you know, everything was easy then. There was no phylloxera. I don't want to make it sound like it was too easy. It was actually quite a lot of work, but um, there was no phylloxera, so you didn't have to buy rooted plants like you do now. If you were getting into the business now, it wouldn't be us, we couldn't have done it, because every plant costs $3.75 a piece, and now now that we're doing things in the French style instead of the early California style, it's four times as many vines to the acre at least, but in our day, the orthodoxy was eight feet by ten feet and we didn't have phylloxera. We could take cuttings off of Dickey, Rath's Vineyard, which we did, and put them in the ground and they made their own roots. And we just had to get muddy and dirty every day and work our butts off. And that was all it took. And so um, that was the opportunity plus the interest in wine that came from that vision of a civilized life. And that all kind of fit together. And I have a feeling you would hear something very similar from almost everybody who started here in the 70s or 60s, something like that. Well, knowing your
1: liberal arts background, Mm -hmm. can you speak to how it may have helped you in the vineyard and
2: winery endeavor?
1: Yeah, I think
2: it it, two ways. Um, People ask me that a lot because it seems so irrelevant. But I believe, first of all, I still believe I did then and I do now, that a good, strong liberal education is the best foundation for anything. It is the kind of foundation that lets you say, of course we can do that. All we have to do is go and find out how, right? And and this feeling that you have the skills that you need and the perspective that you need to be able to take on whatever comes your way. So that, I think, is invaluable. And historical perspective in particular, but not just that. Just you know, kind of understanding the structure of all the branches of knowledge, so you know how to go find things that you need. And that's important for anybody in any field, not just ours. Everything, always. Even though it's not the trend anymore, it's still true. It doesn't matter that it's not the trend anymore. Um, The other thing is I just really think historical perspective specifically lets you not get too bogged down in the trend of the moment. I mean I feel like our business has had a clear view of itself, of ourselves, of what we're trying to do, what we want to do, what we mean to be doing here that's been able to just float on the surface of all these constant changes that have taken place in the wine market, wine styles, wine preferences, the way wine is marketed, appreciated, perceived. Just to be able to see that continuity somehow is bigger than that broiling surface. uh, It's an attitude, it's a mindset that I think we all had going into it that's kept us fairly steady and on track. And I think it's been transmitted to our kids, too.
1: So speaking of family, Mm -hmm. can you describe for us how the partnership started with the various family members for Bethel Heights, and then, of course, with the children coming
2: on board, how that's occurred? Okay. Well, it started, um, as I said, we spent a lot of vacation time with Terry and Marilyn. My husband and Ted Castile and his brother Terry Castile, they're twin brothers. That was sort of the nucleus. And then Terry Castile married Marilyn Webb, and Ted Castile married Pat Dudley. And in our obstinacy and not knowing the future, we kept our own names. So we couldn't be the Castile winery. Unfortunately, it would have been a much easier situation than what we ended up with. But we didn't know that. So we were um, interested in wine, the four of us together. It was a kind of hobby that we shared then in addition to that when we when the four of us settled on this place and moved here and uh and made the big investment it was a lot of it was a big investment even though land was relatively inexpensive it wasn't free plus you know with growing a vineyard you don't start seeing any cash turn around for quite a while so there had to be money to buy the land and install the vineyard and all the trellis and and wait three years for the first crop and in the meantime survive. So we needed all the money we could get from all the family members. So my sister came in with a chunk and she became a partner and um, my father invested some money so there were in the beginning there were that many people six (laughs) and then um, So, but the only ones that lived here and were actually actively engaged was Ted and Pat and Terry and Marilyn, and we built houses here. We built, each built a house in 1979, and that was the year we moved out to this property. They're on opposite sides of the ravine that runs through the middle of the property, Uh, thanks to my mother-in-law's very good advice, who said, the mother of the twins. She said, this is never going to work, girls. <laughs> this is never going to work, <laughs> but you should at least build your houses on opposite side of the ravine. And I actually think nobody actually thought it was going to work, because people like us, we were city people. We had no idea what we were doing. We didn't even know how to turn on the tractor. And it, it just seemed like it wasn't going to go anywhere, but what the heck, real estate is always a good investment, and we'll just wait till it has to be sold, and then we'll all go back to what we were sensibly doing before. But So Terry and Marilyn Ted and Pat moved out here, and we had at that point five children between us. And we are fairly isolated from the outside world at that point, more so than now, because the Eola Hills was one of the last of the uh, AVAs that actually was developed, it was pretty much nobody here but us. There were a few, and I mentioned Myron, of course, was up in Amity. He was here before us. In fact, Terry knew him at University of Washington, and they came from that same wine culture beginning there. and. Um, so the kids went to school in Amity. It was the closest public school. It was we were in that district. They are so appalled to think of that now that that, that anybody would send their children there. <laughs> we believed in public education, actually, in the day I really believed in it and we all did like this is the foundation of our democracy of course your children are going to public school and got very engaged in the school but in any case it was a long way away and so they're fairly isolated the kids out here and they hung together pretty much because of that and in particular the two middle children Uh, Ben on that side of the pond and Mimi on our side of the pond, cousins. They were best buddies and they really got into exploring the property together and really were the ones that were most at home here in so many ways. Uh, My oldest daughter ended up going off to the University of Chicago as soon as she graduated from Amity High School because she couldn't wait to get out of here. (laughs) And so Mimi and Ben, uh, as they grew up, they, they all, the kids, worked in the vineyard in the summer vacation to make money and so on. And they knew the grapes and they knew the place and all of that. But there was no evidence that any of them would ever be interested in making a career out of the family business. We didn't expect it. In fact, there was an interview in the Oregon Wine Press, I think it was around 1994, somewhere in there, where they said to us, four old folks at that point, what are you gonna do when it's time to retire? And we said, well, we'll probably have to sell the business to our employees because the children are not at all interested in it.
3: Okay, so I'm Rachel Woody, it's November 20th, 2014,
1: and we are joined, uh, in addition to Pat Dudley, we're here with Marilyn Webb and we are in the midst of hearing Pat's story about how the families got together to the winery and and the children coming into it, so feel free to take it from there.
3: Well, you were at the pond. Yeah,
2: well, and then I was at the point, remember when we had that interview with um, Richard and Elaine for the Oregon Wine Mm -hmm. Press in 94, 95, somewhere in there, and they said, what are you going to do when you want to retire? And we could only say, well, we'll probably have to sell this business to our employees because the children have no interest in it whatsoever. So you could take it from
3: there. Well, I think part of that was that we didn't know. And we were first generation farmers, wine growers, and the whole industry was so new in Oregon. And I think one of the best things our two families did, to be honest, was we just threw ourselves heart and soul into this. Raising kids was a piece of it. But we did not push them in any way to think, dream. It was our dream, really. Mm -hmm. And they sort of tagged along. Um, I remember one great newsletter we did. And Jessie, Pat and Ted's oldest daughter, wrote a wonderful piece on how she wished she had been raised on a strawberry plantation. (laughs) All there were were vines, vines, vines. And, you know, we sort of thought, okay, and Ben did his on, Mr. Frog goes croak, 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 I hope he will never smoke, something like that. I mean, that's where they were. They were having a wonderful time, and one of my favorite things with Ben and Mimi was Ben, when he was probably five, would announce, very importantly, that he and Mimi were going on a walk, and he needed a sandwich to take. (laughs) So they would get their little lunches on both sides of the pond, which we did worry about a bit. (laughs) And they would take off. And we kind of trusted them. And we were always gardening and busy. And they would have adventures, one of which was down at a point in in the vineyard, which we called the swamp. The swamp, yeah. yeah. It was a little bit of a wetland, I think. And they would get themselves sort of stuck in mud. And have a sort of outrageous adventures, which they would write about at school, but we never—never never knew. We never <laughs> so knew much
2: afterwards. <laughs>
3: yeah. But they were good friends. Yeah, mm-hmm. still are. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it's—we just didn't push them. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and Ben went away uh, to—well, they all went away to college. They and and we didn't really expect they'd ever find their way back again. No. But, th- but eventually they did, and from different roots, but only the two of them. Actually, there's John. We, could mention, we John. could mention John. Younger brother of Ben was best friends with my son, Robert, who died when he was 17. So that some had to end at that point, which I don't know, it's hard to imagine what would have come of that. But John actually came back into the picture later. But in any case, the kids went off to college. Mimi got involved in, she studied classics and archaeology when she went to Tulane because. Big proponents of uh, liberal education, as we all were at that point. Ben was doing philosophy in English and was planning to be an English professor, I guess, something <laughs> like that. And um, so, yeah. And then Ben went to uh, as the, it was the year he graduated from college, I believe. Mm-hmm. He went to, g- to get a job with some help from Terry and our connections in Burgundy. Worked for a, a harvest period there, and then when he came back, he'd he'd been bitten by the bug at that point. And he went to work at Rex Hill Vineyard. He worked for Lynn Pennerash actually for quite a while and she became his mentor. And then Mimi, her route was very different. When she got out of college, she went to work for the Forest Service and she had had a very strong interest in ecology and and, um, she really developed that when she was working for the Forest Service and came back to Oregon to get a degree in a master's degree in forest ecology. And then she was that close. She was in, in Corvallis and was coming home more often and started to get interested in the vineyard as a place where plants are grown. And not only that, the ecosystem mm-hmm. here includes much that can't be seen. Uh, there's a, a stream that runs through it, the ravine, and the trees that grow there and just the landscape of Oregon was beginning to fascinate her and she worked for the folks that did that big I had it here a little while ago big survey of the land in the Willamette Valley the land use patterns so she kinda came in back in through that door where she was more interested in the farming practices and the way plants translate themselves into wine then and then Ben came at it from the other side so in the end, they both came back to work for us in 2005. Yes, that's true. That's, the, that's where Terry handed over the mm-hmm. reins to Ben. That's one story you should probably tell.
3: Well, I think Ben, when Ben wanted to go to Burgundy to work a crush, and he was um, helped in that by the man who was selling our wine in Illinois at that time, who was our national broker, he got him connected. He saw, I think for the first time, what it was in Burgundy that was so family and estate oriented. Mm-hmm. I don't think he'd had any idea that this could be, and should be, if possible, a generational <clears throat> progression, that in Burgundy, I, I don't know how they pull it off, right. I think some children become barrel makers, but, um, and that's our John, I'll say something about that in a minute. But he got it. He got it for the first time, and he came home and just said, "Dad, I, I, I want to be a winemaker." And Terry's response was, "I, I, I am so happy. I'm so proud of you. I'm so surprised. Go get a job." <laughs> and uh, and he did. And he worked under several winemakers, mm-hmm. Aaron Hess, uh, who's no longer with us, but. Um, He was a great influence on Ben, and for whatever reason, both, who knows how this works, both Ben and and Mimi have excellent palettes. They really do, and I don't think you can study that. It it grows on you, but I think it has to do with uh, having an awfully good nose and a good palate, Um, in in Ben's case, he loves to cook. I think he's all over spices and um, so we're very happy about all that, but we did not plan it. And I think Pat knows she's more in the industry these days, but I think we're very envied by Mm -hmm. having this wonderful progression of these two kids who grew up. Uh, almost like a brother and a sister, um, very close to the same. And work age. very well together. They do. Yeah. They come at it from different perspectives.
2: Much like the twins, the fathers, mm-hmm. um, Irma was so, their mother was so worried about them being able to sort out but it was easy for them, mm-hmm. I think. Relatively easy. It be- was. Terry wanted to be a winemaker and Ted wanted to be a grape farmer, and it was, I mean, only at harvest time <laughs> did there come to be any disputes, actually. When are we gonna pick these grapes? But, um, and it's its similar for, for Mimi and Ben. It's a completely different dynamic in a lot of ways, but, mm-hmm. um, but they have enough, uh, different, they came at it from different enough angles that they bring completely different things to the
3: table that really
2: just plays well off of each other.
3: And unlike Terry and Ted, who had, I think maybe by virtue of being twins, their territory was pretty separate. They mm-hmm. had pretty good boundaries and um, so Ted really was the vineyard guy and Terry was the wine guy. It's blurred with, it is. with <laughs> yeah. Ben and Mimi. Um, Mimi is incredibly um, bright and a learner and has her hand actually in every single part of our business. She is really understanding it from all angles, business, marketing, promotion, grape growing, winemaking. She is um, that kind of person in her interests, and it's excellent. Ben is more content to uh, really be the winemaker. He understands a lot of mm-hmm. the rest of it, but probably uh, chooses <laughs> yeah, not to get rather. too close to the business side of things. Yeah. Anyway, we're very, we're very lucky and we know it. We're very lucky. And we should mention John, because yeah. John, younger brother of Ben, mm-hmm. two years two younger, years younger
2: um, also worked at Rex Hill for a, for a period. Mm-hmm. Um, and he turned out to be a whiz genius with machinery. Who would ever have imagined that? Not me. It was the biggest surprise in the world, but he really was. He could fix anything. He could build and take it apart and put it back together again. So um, w- when we were to the point where we were, the four original people here, were starting to think about transitions, what was going to be the place for John because we were always fairly committed this is a family business it's here for the family if if there's a place for family members in it let's try to find it and so John didn't want to have to work for his brother and that was really clear he didn't want to work for Ben and Ben stepped in as the winemaker and John decided to start his own
3: business and it is and what what he said one day he's he's a man of few words but they're usually rather important. He looked at us and looked around he said, well, it looks to me like all the chairs are taken. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. (laughs) The chairs were taken. But he, when he was at Rex Hill, Paul Hart was just a a wonderful mentor to both our sons. But with John, he really began to see that this was a kid who was really hands-on. He began to realize that the bottling line they had was mainly fixed by someone pounding it with a hammer or kicking it or, it was just a constant nightmare because bottling lines don't get used very often and machinery has to be used or it has bumps in the night. So John proposed to Paul that he go with the machine and it be rebuilt. Um, And he said, I won't take a salary, I just wanna go. And he said, Paul said, absolutely, but you know, go, that's great. And John began to see bottling lines um, from the ground up and that's the end of that story. He now, he came to us and we helped him get started, but he um, is on a mission to buy us out, Bethel Heights, (laughs) as his his partner, um, knowing that in the long run uh, he will be more profitable if. He owns 100% rather than 50, but he knows he probably couldn't have started. No bank would have talked to, what, 27-year-old? Yeah, year yeah. Old?
2: yeah. So, so its company is Castile Custom Bottling, yeah. and you'll see it everywhere. He's got two trucks now. It's yes. a mobile bottling line, and he drives, he's got two people working for him, he's got a whole bunch of employees, I mean, he's got a real flourishing business. He does with and a dynamic cash flow that's yeah. much more, <laughs> much more visible than ours. <laughs> much more fluid. Much yeah. more fluid. <laughs> oh, but, but it's good. At the moment, we're getting our bottling done for nothing. Yes. For a while, while while the good times last.
3: Well, we we should say while since this is being taped. <laughs> <laughs> We we, he, pay. we pay him, and he, pays he pays us. us.
2: <laughs> That's right. That's there, is for the check, there is a check. There is a
3: check paper trail. Oh
2: yeah, there's that, a paper that trail. That Transaction.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, in addition to running the winery, getting the vineyard going, I know that both of you have been very involved in the industry beyond um, International Pinot Noir Celebration, Oregon Pinot Camp, live um, low input viticulture Immunology, salmon safe. Could you both speak to all of the various things that you've helped contribute to? Perhaps why that was so important for an industry and in its infancy. I think
2: mm-hmm. you should go first. Marilyn
3: actually entered in first of all yeah. of us. Mine's pretty s- simple, and Pat's is much more layered. Uh, but don't layered. forget all the I parts. won't. I'll try but not. Okay. to Marilyn first, and then we'll yeah,
1: and then you can call each other out on being too humble. Right.
3: <laughs> well, I think the main thing that I'm most uh, proud of is that back in 83 when I was on the uh, wine Growers board of directors and I was on the research committee and we realized that there had been one uh, manual written I think by OH uh, by Oregon State um, Maybe. it was it, it was on how to how to grow grapes in Oregon um, and it had served, but it was long out of date. So I have a copy of that. I don't know how I managed to keep one, but I did. And uh, I think it was in 84. I can check that. Um, there, you have it. Good man. <laughs> we, we really uh, went back to the drawing I was 83. That was just as David Lett had won competitions um, in Burgundy. And so the Oregon wine industry was really beginning to be noticed. And people were coming and wanting to grow grapes and wanting information, and there was nothing up to date. So we redid it, and um, I edited this. It was a lot of work. Uh, the chapter that David Adelsheim wrote is groundbreaking in terms of all the trellis options, that, including the Scott Henry, which was developed you know, by Scott Henry here in Oregon. And um, it was it, that chapter in particular, although it was, I just had to pull every trick in the books to get David to finish it because it was such a labor for him to give us. But we did. We put this book together and um, it's been revised since then. I think Ted revised mm-hmm. one of the editions. Mm-hmm. But th- I was very proud of that. Um, I guess the other. I, w- while I was on then chair of the research committee for the wine advisory board, I think one of the scariest things that happened to us was um, measureall was being used at that time as a way to keep um, birds from eating grapes. It's still used, I believe, in bla- in uh, in blueberries if i 'm not mistaken i don't know but, but of course, it was dangerous in many ways because wine goes into a bottle and it can be retested you 're not just ingesting some blueberries and then it 's gone uh, good you know good luck and good fortune so at some point, the Oregon Department of Agriculture came and pulled bottles from various wineries and um came back with extremely high levels of um, of, um, measure all residue measure all residue Mm -hmm. in the wines and I called um, OSU and the head of the wine uh, sciences program went to the mat to get everything retested and as it turned out they had um, they were off by two digits in their measurement. And it was one of the scariest moments in, our, in my life, um, because it was going to go public. It was, and it, the, our industry was so new and so fragile that, you know, those kinds of things can just, um, well, it was just, you know, flash in the pan. Oregon probably is not going to be around that long. Forget that. But it um, it was it, it resolved itself, although no apology was ever given, and um, I've mm-hmm. never quite forgotten that. Yeah, that was uh, it was the uh, scary thing that didn't really happen, but might have. It might have. Yeah. And so those were my.
2: But Marilyn, you forgot two things. Of the <laughs> 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 there's the um, this Steve Clancy thing.
3: Oh yes, we did write, and I, I had to actually. I want a plaque to even know the date. This is really, I'm, I'm the dated one here. But um, I did, we did have a retreat for the uh, Oregon Wine Advisory Board when I, I was chairing at that time. And thank you. And we, Terry Clancy, who You're was with one out. of the fighting varietals. There you go. You could have done a Vanna for me. I could have done that. <laughs> um, uh, Terry Clancy, who was uh, uh, the marketing director for a, a number of California fighting varietals, Terry Clancy. That's he right. no longer is with us mm-hmm. either, uh, which is so sad. He came to help us figure out what we needed to do to write a marketing plan because we had not. We, the, yeah. Oregon, wine we, the or- Oregon wine industry. We, the Oregon wine industry. We had no marketing plan. And what I remember about that is we were at Tualatin, at Bill Fuller's, uh, who was then the owner uh, of Tualatin. With Myron Redford's hand calculator, we began to do the numbers of, because Terry's Clancy, Terry Clancy's question was, this is not rocket science. How many cases do you have of what varietals, at what price point, Let's get the data. So there we were with um, Oregon State's statistics that they give and Myron's hand calculator. And that was the beginning of putting together a pretty straightforward picture of how much wine we had and when we needed to sell it by in order to keep current with vintages. And on a pro computer, I really date myself now, <laughs> I hammered out a marketing plan um, and there was just one other step before I had to really hammer it out based on the work we'd done. Uh, Robert Drouin, I re- I'm sure I woke him up in the middle I, with time differences, I begged him to come and meet with us and talk to us about marketing and what we needed to do and he did, he came and um, he too was very clear, uh, you know, one of Terry Clancy's statements to us coming from the fighting varietals of California was keep it small and keep it precious. Mm-hmm. I will never forget him saying that. Um, you know, I think he saw that they were working so hard to sell nine dollar bottles of wine in California with tremendous competition at that price point. And What he saw was that Oregon was doing something unique that was more like Burgundy than Bordeaux, uh, more like Oregon than California. It's small family farms. It's Pinot Noir, which has an an expression here that is different uh, from California. And so there you have it. I I really believe between those two men, we got a start on on how to do the numbers, just crunching numbers, and coming up with a plan if how to keep up with vintage. So I have a copy still of that
2: Clancy report. I've I've got it in my file. The
3: marketing report. The market. The
2: Cl- Terry Clancy's report to the to, to the wine advisory. Oh, good. You don't yeah. happen
3: to have the marketing plan? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sad about that.
2: <laughs> Is it just lost? Well, who knows?
3: Who knows? Yeah,
2: well, anyway, you should have the Clancy report somewhere in your files, I assume. Yeah, it was just a moment that was '83, right? Yes, yeah. And the other thing was Cary, Oregon Wines, that I wanted you to remember to mention.
3: That's true, Stephen Cary was. Very important to our industry. And back in um, when our first vintage in 1984, um, we were with a group of, of the early pioneers, very well positioned, um, more so than we Adelsheim, Ponzi, uh, Dickie Rath. Dickie Rath, yep. Um, and, and Stephen Carey um, m- built a company to go out and market these Oregon wines together. And it was brilliant. He saw early on, and in fact, both Robert Drouilla and uh, Steve Clancy said, whatever you do, don't get hysterical about um, appellations and so forth and so on. Go out and sell Oregon. Just sell Oregon. Because people aren't, they're they're not going to be able to absorb. And so we were a long time coming, and we kind of drug our feet, mm-hmm. to the whole question of sub appellations It was time, but um, there were, we had really marketed for the whole, I bet, all of the 80s as uh, Oregon wine. Well, in the 90s too, I think. Early really. 90s, yeah. The Willamette yeah. Valley was beginning to yeah. emerge yeah. at that time. And I think one of the hardest things, having been on the boards, um, Pinot Noir was such a rocket star that um, people in the Rogue um, and and the Southern Oregon uh, who were doing more Cabernet and Merlot felt, you know, left out. But I think they have found their place and are now producing some beautiful wines which have taken off and I don't sense, of course I'm not on the firing lines anymore, but I don't sense that that's such a big issue anymore. Like Pinot Noir was an introduction, but then it pulled right through to our Chardonnay and our Pinot Gris, and now our Southern Oregon varietals, which are uh, more of the Bordelais varieties and just beautiful, (laughs) except for the Illinois Valley, which is more like the Willamette Valley, and they do beautiful Pinot Noir.
2: Steve Carey also founded Steamboat. Mm -hmm. He's somebody you'll need to talk to, right? You know that probably already.
1: We've talked to him a little bit, he tends to be busy. Yes, well... We've
2: only caught up for a couple of meetings. Elusive. Yes. So I think probably. a word for
1: us. <laughs> you should sit down and be interviewed. That would be great.
3: Yeah. Well, if we ever saw him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, he served us very well. And eventually it, it it frayed because we were all beginning to be stepping over one another to get the few placements that were available. And we needed to have um, a more individualized approach to the market, Mm -hmm. but in the early days it was really helpful to be a band of brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. out there trying to sell some wine. The company was called Carrie Oregon Wines that he
2: started, and he really did put together a network of distributors who were the early believers, the early supporters of Oregon wine as a category. And, um, and to this day most of them are still with us. Some of our heritage distributors are the ones that Steve Carey found for us in those days. So that was important. There was very much a sense of collaboration in the early days. It still exists, it's still pretty strong actually because it was clear that one by one individual brands from a place nobody even knew whether it was north or south of the state of Washington at that point um, couldn't really make, I mean with such small production, we couldn't make any kind of an impression or gain any kind of traction in the world without working as a group. It was the only thing that worked. So,
1: Well before we move on to the next question, we still need to hear about the groups you were involved Mm -hmm. with. Right,
2: right. Okay, well International Pinot Noir Celebration was established in 86. I think that's right. I wasn't in on the ground floor. Terry was. Terry was on the founding board. And um, I didn't get involved in it at all until 91 when I, we both went out looking for outside jobs at some point when the kids were going off to college and we weren't really making a whole lot of money here. So I was uh, hired as executive director in 91 for the International Pinot Noir celebration which was a great opportunity for me to l- really get connected with um, opinion makers and other wineries and so on. I learned a lot doing this job. But what was, um, what was really interesting about that time between 1991 and 1995, when was my last year as executive director, 96, I can't remember. Um, it went from being something that nobody had heard about. It was a real struggle to sell tickets. When they interviewed me for the job they said how are you going to be able to sell 300 tickets to this event? It's like a duh, I don't know. <laughs> but what happened, there was a moment where it all changed. I was in a little tiny office on the second floor of the building where Harvest Fresh is in McMinnville now. A little tiny one-room office. There was a Hewlett-Packard computer because the president of the board was um, Ken oh my gosh Patton, Ken Patton who was the president of Hewlett-Packard when that was still the big business in McMinnville it was the big business Linfield now occupies that whole campus right but he was, um, he, he, he and his colleagues at Hewlett Packard were really the ones that helped get yeah. that off the ground. And people in McMinnville, part of the McMinnville community, like the banks, Mary Lou Cooper from the bank and Carol Jaden from the bank, um, it really got, and Nick Pirano, of course, oh, yeah. you know. Those people that were part of the McMinnville community are the ones that made it happen. And the wine community was just, I mean, we were the the bait but they were the foundation. So we had this little tiny office upstairs and it had a computer in it that I had no idea how to operate because I had always been a Mac person and there was this ridiculous I used to just mutter about Bill Gates every day when I walked in there (laughs)
3: like the
2: devil is in my office. But anyway and and then there was a, a Rolodex and that was the whole supplies it was a rolodex with some key names in it and this computer and there was a fax machine so there was no email yet we had no email and the fax machine was in the early days where you had that slimy paper you know that really icky paper (laughs) <laughs> but what? So it was very primitive and, and the selling was difficult and so on and so on, but there came a moment when Dick Erath, again this name that comes up all the time, boy he had his hand in many things, but he was a good friend of Frank Pryle, who was one of the most important wine writers in the United States. He wrote for the New York Times, he wrote the wine column for the New York Times. There was nobody more influential than that and Dick Erath got to be his buddy and convinced him to come to the IPNC. So what year was that, Pat? Well, it's all in the archives, and I don't remember. 92, I guess it was, or 93. Um, He came and he wrote this one article the day after it was over. Um, that year the, and he went back to New York and wrote this most this fabulous article that was just about there, there's nothing better that you could possibly do if you love wine than to come to this event and I had taken a weekend off when it was over actually I took most of the week off because it was so exhausting to put this event together I mean it was just I couldn't believe this was supposed to be a part-time job I actually couldn't believe I had been sucked into that <laughs> you know, for part-time pay oh. anyway so I, I took a, a couple days off after it was over and when I came back to the office The fax machine had gone berserk. There was paper all (laughs) over the floor. I mean, it was just reams of it and every, everybody in the country wanted to come to the International Pinot Noir celebration that was going to be the following year it was like 12 months away and every ticket was sold all over the floor and then some we didn't I mean we didn't even have capacity for a waiting list at that point so overnight it changed and the whole job changed and the whole event changed it's like how many people can we fit in the dining room the Dillon Hall you know Dylan Hall you all know Dillon Hall hardly anybody fits in there right <laughs> (laughs) So it was like the whole thing changed overnight. We had to completely reconsider everything. We had to have waiting lists, we had to institute a lottery, and it really helped, I think, put Oregon wine on the map, because people were coming here, and it was an international phenomenon at that point, like we'd hoped it would be, but it just took that one voice. It's always so amazing how those things happen sometimes. so there was that. And, and the most important thing about the International Pinot Noir celebration that made it us different from everybody else in the world, when the, when, and I know this only second hand because I wasn't there, but when they started talking about developing this event, at first it was going to be a competition, right? A, a, another big wine competition. And, they, and the, the, the community together decided that's not what we want. We want everybody to come and share their enthusiasm together and it's going to be a celebration and not a competition and the key to that is that's been sort of the foundation of everything we've tried to do is keep the competition amongst ourselves out of the picture. We're all in this boat together, we're all making wonderful Pinot Noir and this is true with our colleagues in Burgundy, our colleagues in New Zealand Pinot Noir everywhere is a small family operation. It's a hands-on operation. It's different from every other grape variety that way. Great Pinot Noir can only be made in small batches. I mean, that was something that that recognized. So that was, that was again, so lucky in the early days to have that defined, agreed upon, and and expressed over and over again so that every new person that came to Oregon got it. It was part of the culture. It became an important part of the culture. Then the Oregon Pinot Camp was, again, I would say an expression of the same spirit, probably. We had um, a group of Willamette Valley wineries had formed an earlier organization called the Northwest Wine Marketing Coalition. I think that's what it was called. That's what it was called. And we were doing road shows where we'd we'd all go together and we'd go to a city and we'd show our wines and We stood behind our tables looking like anybody from anywhere because we were in a foreign place in a ballroom in a hotel in Chicago with a white tablecloth. We could have been from anywhere. And we were just chatting amongst ourselves about why isn't anybody here and why isn't this more exciting? It's like, because it's not in Oregon, you know? Here we're so far from home. If we could just get those people to come here, and that was the genesis of the idea of Oregon Pinot Camp. So it was, uh, again, a, a collaborative group, it's, it's the same names over and over again, the, the core group of people that really made it happen, and then um, it really resonated, because when the first group came, their experience was of a community, that welcomed them as part of the community because it was those people out there who are carrying the story of our wine to the market. So they're part of the family. So it's the IPNC and the OPC have together been this sort of building of the family, of the community around Pinot Noir. And um, it hasn't run its course yet. I was sure that OPC would end after about 10 years because hasn't everybody already come? And we had this rule that you could only come once but of course not because there's always new people and they all hear about it and it's created this great word of mouth buzz in the market that is, you can't get that by any other means than your friends telling you, the people you trust, the people you respect, the people you hang out with telling you that this is so exciting, you've gotta go do it, these wines are so fabulous. It's always been for us, guerrilla marketing because nobody could afford except, well, not to name names, uh, advertising in the Wine Spectator or anything like, it's not our gig. It's not our game. We don't have the resources or the will to do it that way. So um, that's been... Uh, one success after another, but it's because the community always pulls together and makes it work. Even when it looks like everything's falling apart. You know, the bus didn't show up, or the food didn't show up, or whatever happened. The executive director didn't show up. (laughs) Whatever. Or was having a baby. (laughs) Or was having a baby, exactly. Because Maria Stewart was executive director, and she had her first baby right in the middle of the salmon (laughs) bake. basically. So anyway, that's just been the way it's always been. You, One of the great incidents at the uh, IPNC, great in retrospect, because it was the most horrifying thing that ever happened, it was my first year, the first full year as executive director, the Burgundian wines, it was always a big problem to put them together because they had to ship their wines over from Burgundy, because most of those wines are not really widely distributed here anyway. So we'd be in communication with them, again, only by fax. This was before email still, and the faxes would ring in the middle of the night, you know. Um, They would get all their wine to a central place, and it would get put on a container all together for IPNC. And then that container, we would follow its progress sort of by, on boats, on a ship. And it would come all the way to Oregon, and it would have to get here on time. And I'm, it was all very scary and difficult. It, it's so much easier now. But it wasn't then. And so one year, that year, my second year, first year, whichever one it was, you can see my memory is dim. This is good. This is how you protect yourself against your memories. You just forget things. (coughs) (laughs) The, The boat, the ship, when it went through the Panama Canal, got its air conditioning turned on too high and froze all the wine. And we got this telegram that all the wines had been frozen and a lot of them were popping their corks. And so we were going to get this delivery of... And this was, and it was arriving like three days before the event. And so we called an emergency meeting of the board of directors. Nancy Ponzi was president then. I, and, and we sat up all night trying to figure out what to do about it. We called every distributor in the United States, trying to get wines from these producers who were coming all the way from Burgundy to be here to pour their wine, to try to get to purchase you know, to save ourselves by purchasing those wines. Well, we couldn't get them all. So we brought all the wine that had arrived on this container into the, um, the rooms behind Dillon Hall where we used to have the wine rooms. And uh, we, we asked the Burgundians to meet us there. They had all arrived, all these lovely Frenchmen. They were so sweet. And they all came to the room and we solemnly told them in French, that this terrible thing had happened to their wine, and we want them to, to see their bottles and to look at them and check them for us and see if any of them were okay to be poured. And they were so great. They said, you know, it's okay if it froze. If we're going to drink it this weekend, it's fine. Just don't put it away for 20 years. <laughs> so, we you know, we popped the corks, and we had brought in a lot of extra wine. But it was really, again, just a case, because I remember the emotion of it all so much. I mean, we were feeling so bad for them and so worried about our event. And so, I mean, it was just we couldn't sleep for days on end. And then they were so gracious about it. And it turned out to be a wonderful, it was one of the best years ever. It was probably the year Frank Prowl was there. If I could keep all my sequences straight, yeah. we could tell this story much better. <laughs> but it was, again, a case of those, those Burgundians are like us. They're so much like us. I remember meeting a couple that were sort of middle-aged couple that were one of the most famous names in burgundy and you always expect them to be sort of godlike people you know but they were just sort of dumpy little middle class people middle aged like us and I remember talking to the woman the 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 owner Uh, she said, you know, I hardly ever go to Paris. I think I've only been twice in my life. It was this revelation to me, like, they're just like we are. I never go to Portland, she never (laughs) goes to Paris. (laughs) But they make the most sublime wine on the face of the earth. And that community is like that everywhere. It's people that don't necessarily come across as being rock stars, but really are, you know. Mm -hmm.
3: Anyway. Another short story made long. <laughs> well, and Pat, I think one of the geniuses of um, both OPC and especially the IPNC is that it, it never was just about Oregon. Right, right. You mean, especially I, IPNC. I know. Yeah. I mean, I think people have given us probably more kudos for that inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, And for for a very long time, I don't know if it's still true, we didn't even have any more spots than anyone from Burgundy Mm -hmm. or California. It just was more about an international opportunity Mm -hmm. to taste great Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. But when you're the home court, a lot comes with that. Your graciousness, Mm -hmm. your hosting your food. Right. Well, and people come out and visit, we have lunches now in wine country
2: for IPNC. So there's a chance for people to come and get to know yeah. the region. But it's really true that the inclusiveness and the camaraderie of of the Oregon wine community is always appreciated by the the market, you know, whoever comes, they all appreciate it. Hi, I'm Camille Weber. I'm the Dick
0: Erath intern and I have a couple of questions for Pat. Um, so while looking through your collection, I saw that you wrote a type of gossip column for the <laughs> grapevine um, entitled Quoi de Neuf. Um, Now this column I'm assuming is not only for fun on your end, but also as a way to kind of connect um, everybody to, you know, what's happening in the wine industry, what different vineyards are doing. Um, things like that, but since it is type of a gossip column, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> curious, did did you ever cause any kind of controversy
2: um, <laughs> with your column or anything? Or? Well, I tried not to cause anybody any serious controversy. I, I, I When I had a story that I thought anybody might have any trouble with, I always checked it out first. I never just went cold with that, so um, It looks like it's a little risque from time to time, but I always had permission with that. And interestingly enough, people liked to be the subject of some conversation in many (laughs) cases because it was just fun. It was always just for fun. There was never anything that anybody would feel seriously embarrassed by or in any way compromised by. I tried to keep it on the light side. And so it was just fun. And and I'll tell you, it was more successful than I expected it to be. When Bill Nelson was executive director of the Oregon Wine Growers Association at that point, or whatever it was called then, it's changed its name so many times but we had this newsletter that nobody ever read and there was some important information that was supposed to be communicated and he said we've got to have something that make people read this what we need is a gossip column we were just sitting and chatting and I thought whoa what fun because at that point I was stuck at home with little kids and I wasn't really very actively involved in anything outside of Bethel Heights. And so this was a way for me to kind of get connected with people. So that was really fun. And yeah, yeah. I think it was more, people liked it. People always were telling me that it was the first thing they read as soon as they got it. They were always, so it was a lot of fun. And I was sorry when I had to give it up, but when I gave it up was when I got my job with IPNC. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, did you find anything that you thought was a little bit risque when you read through it?
0: (laughs) I mean, it it was just like, I could tell it was lighthearted jabs, but um, the same token,
2: you know, we don't know. I know. The only one that I thought maybe just went a little over the (laughs) edge was the story of Dick and Joan Erath's wedding. It was great fun. That was one of those great wine country events. Everybody went and it was hilarious. And Myron Redford was the officiator of the ceremony. And I, my favorite part of the story was um, uh, <laughs> Karen Hinsdale and, and uh, Wayne Strohecker's girlfriend had the same dress on. <laughs> so it was kind of a scandal. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> I know. How embarrassing, right? I mean, Karen Hinsdale was such a fashion plate. She still is. Oh, my God. She still is the most fashionable woman in the wine industry. Anyway, it was just for fun. Nobody took offense ever, as far as I know. Okay? (laughs) If they did, they didn't tell me. Well, good to know. Yeah. Um, So while
0: I was doing a little bit more, like, studying into the collection, I also ran into a couple of OWA newsletters. And... On September 1st, um, in the 1990 edition, um, it was disclosed that there's a budget summit. Um, that the budget summit increased a federal tax on wine by 2,200 mm-hmm. um, percent, which increased the wine four dollars per table wine, and mm-hmm. it was uh, expected to have this really um, catastrophic hit on the wine industry. Um, so, I'm wondering how did that tax increase um, affect you and your family's business, but. Also, the relationship with other vineyards and wineries
2: in the area. Well, the interesting thing about that, I wish I could remember more of the details. You have a clearer memory now than I do. But it was Senator Packwood at that point that was on that committee in Congress. This is a federal tax, right? Mm -hmm. He of course was our guy, because he's from Oregon and okay I, I may have this a little bit wrong so you need to check your facts but there was proposed and eventually instituted a small producer exemption that was going to be able to allow people that were under a certain gallonage level it, it, not just Oregon but anywhere uh, uh, to, it was the idea was to help small family businesses to get started before they had reached some threshold. So exempt from the tax, um, a certain level. And I, I think that's what happened because in fact it didn't have a devastating effect. But it was going to have a devastating effect. And it was one of those battles that we had to really focus everything we had on influencing our congressional delegation. And we were lucky to have somebody with as much influence on the committee that it was a tax reform thing that was going a tax bill that was being written and Packwood had a lot to do with it so I think but you should check with Bill Nelson for the because he'll remember a lot better than I do what all that fell out but we ended up okay and that small producer exemption still exists and most Oregon wineries still fit under the small producer definition I mean compared to California we're all small, you know, pretty much, with just a few exceptions in Oregon. So that's as well as I can remember to answer your question.
0: No, perfect. Um, okay, so I only have one more question. Yes. Um, so I'm a little interested in what you're currently doing um, with the Oregon Certified Sustainable Wine Project. Mm-hmm. Um, So I did a little bit of research and it turns out a third of Oregon vineyards are certified and Oregon in general is one of the states that is a leader in promoting um, this going green um, type of sustainability. So how did the um, OCSW project expand to what it is today and do you have any other bigger
2: plans for what it is? Well, let me tell you about OCSW (laughs) just to get you up to date is the wine board was the sponsor and the initiator of Oregon Certified Sustainable Wine. It was an umbrella certification started in 2008 that if you were certified either by live or by uh, organic certifier or biodynamic certifier, you would qualify for this Oregon Certified Sustainable Wine. The wine board a year and a half ago decided to end the program yeah and so it doesn't exist anymore. The last wines that were certified o c s w were the twenty thirteen whites the first wines that were bottled in twenty thirteen They gave fair warning and uh so attention and energy has shifted now it was always the case from the beginning of that program that the vast majority I mean the overwhelming majority of the wines of the vineyards and that were certified were certified under the live program there are some and a few of them are big ones that are certified organic Sokol Blosser's one King Estate is one those are big acreage but live has the lion's share of certified acreage so for us, and um, for many of the wineries that were actively uh, promoting and participating in OCSW, the attention has shifted to live. Mm. Which, and, it, and live is strong, and live is growing, and live is doing a great job, and it's going to be the vehicle for um, developing our sustainability program going forward. In fact, some really exciting things are happening there now really exciting things have been happening there for several years Ted can tell you more about how it was founded because he was one of the founders of it but um, Mimi's now sitting on the board of directors what happened with the with the beginning of OCSW that was the most important thing the wine board did this when it had a different vision of its role anyway it it was going to require for certification under Oregon Certified Sustainable that not only the vineyard source be certified but also the winery. This is actually a radical addition to the earlier concept of sustainable farming because so much emphasis was put on how the grapes are farmed and, and, and with the organic and biodynamic programs pretty much all the emphasis is there and with live that was the only certification program for many many years in 2008 the Oregon Wine Board when it started OCSW decided to make certifying the winery a requirement now this brings sustainability into a new area which is your processing plant which includes everything that you do in the building your use of water your use of electricity your packaging and then beyond that scope 2 and scope 3 is how it gets from you to the consumer so now LIVE has taken it upon itself to address those questions to develop standards, to develop metrics so that you can actually quantify it started with the carbon reduction challenge quantify your carbon emissions and then we're going to go on from there so it's addressing these things one at a time the other thing and this is all under live now because live was the one that developed the winery certification program organic doesn't have a winery certification program and biodynamic doesn't that you have to be with those programs you have to be able to show that what goes into your bottle is not using any of this 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 in this list but whatever else you're doing in the winery you know if you're throwing all of your effluent down into the pond and it's going into the fish stream, they don't even address those questions. I'm not saying people do that, I'm just saying they don't address that question. They certainly don't address the weight of your bottle or the weight of your packaging or any of that kind of question that sustainability, in a true view of the concept, needs to address. So Live has taken a radical step forward to really expand the scope of sustainable certification. And that was, it was forced on live against their wishes by the wine board when it started Oregon Certified Sustainable Wine. You can't have the certification on your bottle unless you do all these things. So they had to make a program. But now they've got the program and they're running with it. And enthusiasm is growing over this because it's so much beyond the scope of what anybody else is doing in this country to address a you know, a, pr- a product that is not just farmed, but then is also processed and then marketed. And so it's an opportunity to really enlarge the conversation about sustainability. And the other exciting thing that's happening, can I say more, I mean, if we, oh, okay. Yeah. This, because this is one of the most exciting things that's going on right now. In, um, in the live program, it's always been a whole farm certification program so it's not just you can pick one block like you could with organic and say these five rows I'm going to do organic and everything else doesn't count but if I put that in the bottle it's certified organic in the live program the whole property that you own needs to be farmed according to live standards you can't set anything aside Even your winery landscaping has got to be farmed according to the standards that are acceptable under the live rules of what you can and can't use and how you have to do it. And one of the essential parts of that has been ecological compensation area because it's recognized that farming in itself is an intrusion on ecosystem sustainability farming in itself interferes with ecosystem sustainability so to set aside a portion of your acreage to become an ecological compensation area for support of wildlife habitat including insects and you know the whole the whole uh, foo- the food chain from little to big uh, including predators of you know and large mammal predators and birds and all of that you have to set aside a certain portion of your acres But it's just been set it aside and don't cultivate it up till now. The new standards are going to have to require that it be a functional habitat. And so there's a lot of attention being directed now on how to make something that's just abandoned blackberry acres become functional habitat. And that has a lot to do then with... um, addressing invasive species, making sure you have structure for birds and all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily consider. So farming with the wild in a proactive way and then the next step is to do connectivity because with wine country here we can do that. You know we have so many uh, parts of the valley are, the vineyards are connected to, you know with just a fence line in between them or there are other farms in between but we know our neighbors and can talk to them and we can imagine the possibility because it's still possible in the Willamette Valley hardly anywhere in the world to imagine wildlife corridors that could go up and down the whole valley and across and you know first for streams for salmon for birds for all kinds of wildlife to be able to coexist in an intact farmland setting, there is an opportunity that we still have here that nobody else has. And the vineyards, because we have a, a cooperative industry and because we have this incredible, uh, very vibrant sustainability program, may be able to be the catalyst to make that happen. The latest conversation we had a couple weeks ago here was to have an, an oak treaty to save the last remaining oak savanna habitat that's going so fast because every time somebody comes in from out of state and wants to start a new vineyard the first thing they do is cut down all the trees. Instead of stopping to say there's no need to cut these down because you can't plant a vineyard there anyway or this is a hundred year old oak tree that's providing habitat for all these creatures you could save that and it could be an icon of your vineyard I mean, and if, if people just stop for a minute before it's all gone and recognize these things. So anyway, not to go on. That's, that's the story for the next generation, but they're really excited about it. And um, it gives you some hope that it's not just gonna be little isolated pockets of people doing, well, we'll make it nice and clean so you can have something clean to put in your body this week, you know. It's going to be a chance to have a real landscape level sustainability model and wouldn't that be exciting?
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a shame <laughs> that CSW had to end, but well, it was live. getting in the way. Yeah, of progress. Yeah, but life seems like they're
2: yeah, doing it a is carrying the ball. Job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, taking up the whole room with my conversation. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but um, I didn't mean to interrupt your tasting. Okay, so anyway. Did uh, I answer your question yeah, enough? You did. Okay, I'm sorry about OCSW. It was such a great idea to start with, but the wine board really just lost interest in it. And part of that was because it was only a small percentage of the wineries in Oregon that were in it, and and they just could, believe me, I've had this made this speech so many times in front of them, if they could only see the possibilities of those 20 wineries being the catalyst, because they were the 20 best wineries in Oregon, but of course you can't say that to those people because they aren't hearing it. (laughs) doesn't matter. I shouldn't go there. I'm not going to say any more about that. (laughs) I'm still very angry about it, in case anybody (laughs) wonders.
0: Well, Pat, do you have um, anything that you'd like to say in addition, um, any kind of things you'd like to bring up that we weren't able to ask you about
2: that you feel oh, like Oh, I think now? you've touched every button. <laughs> 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 I can't think of anything else. No, you've asked all my favorite questions. I do think you should have a word with Ted because he's got some great stories, if you have time, about the beginnings of the live program. Okay. Because uh, there was a day when anyway shall i go get him oh,
1: thank you oh, yes yeah, we'd like to thank you very much
2: i appreciate your questions and i hope oh, people will yeah. go read the gossip columns now okay oh, yeah, the good day <laughs> they were quite fun
3: thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org